getting out of an abusive relationship early makes a huge difference. And I'm proud to say I did come in as a victim, but I am a survivor. Then I could see my mom. My mom was walking toward us. And I got excited. And I was like, there's my mom. And then he didn't stop. I'm trying to keep it together, I said. I gave in to the tears. And I hated that. It, it's not necessarily the easiest process. It's not necessarily the prettiest process, but it is the most effective process. Like, you can do this. I'm going to tell you 100% you can do this, and you're so worth it to do this. I'm sure losing any child is is a real arrow through your heart, but, but uh, you know, she was, she was great. She was a, a, a friend and a family member and our daughter. It feels just as good the tenth time as it did the first time uh, to have one of your citizens that you're out there protecting walk up and tell you thank you. There is one thing stronger in me than fear, and that's my determination. Welcome back. This is Jen Lee, the creator and host of I Need Blue, Survivors Talk Surviving. If this is your first time joining us, we are happy you are here. If you would like to hear other stories or you have a story to submit, visit www.ineedblue.net. Please note, I Need Blue episodes do contain stories which feature graphic content and could be triggering. Please seek help if needed. Remember, you always come first. This episode focuses on the topic of rape. If you are a victim of rape or know someone who is, contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline operated by RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, which is the largest anti-sexual violence organization. They can be reached at 1-800-656-HOPE. When you call this hotline, again, the number is 1-800-656-HOPE, it automatically routes the caller to their nearest sexual assault service provider. I will pause to allow anyone who is feeling triggered to stop this episode. It does contain graphic details. Remember, your well-being comes first. Some details have been altered to protect the identity of the survivor. Today's story is about Becky, a female survivor of rape. Included in this conversation is her husband, Lloyd, who was her boyfriend at the time. Also joining us today will be her daughter. Please note, the definition of rape is a bit graphic, which is inevitable when describing crimes this violent. Rape is forced sexual intercourse, including vaginal, anal, or oral penetration. Penetration may be by a body part or an object. Rape victims may be forced through threats or physical means. In about 8 out of 10 rapes, no weapon is used other than physical force. Anyone may be a victim of rape, women, men, or children, any sexual orientation. Right now, I would like to welcome my guests, Becky, her husband, Lloyd, and their daughter. Thanks, Jen. We really appreciate it. We're happy to be here to be able to talk to you today. 
I'm happy that you are okay to be here and talk about it. And thank you to your husband, Lloyd, and your daughter. Becky, this violent violation happened in 1990, 32 years ago. And what our audience is going to find out is that you are still dealing with it in numerous ways, including seeing this monster in court. Can you share with us what your life was like before? And then can you lead us up to when you met your husband, who was your boyfriend at that time? 1990, I had big hair (laughs) and big bangs. (laughs) It's all about the rave hairspray, remember? Exactly. It was just sort of a typical early 20s, late teens. I had moved out from my parents' house. You know, I was working a full-time job, moved into a house with two of my girlfriends. So there were three of us. And it was just kind of a very exciting time. We were kind of living our lives, you know, doing the normal thing and nothing too crazy. Through one of my roommates, I got set up on a blind date with a friend of her boyfriend. They were just absolutely sure I had to meet this guy. I had no interest because really didn't like her boyfriend. (laughs) So it was kind of like, yeah, okay, not really sure I want to do this. We ended up on this blind date that he knew about, but I didn't. We had a good time and dated for about a month after that. And that led us up to the week before Christmas. So you dated a month before the whole assault. Exactly. Lloyd, I'm putting you on the spot. Okay. (laughs) But I would love to know when you first met Becky, what that was like for you. It just seemed to click from day one, from that first meeting. We met. We left together that night. I drove Lloyd home. (laughs) She she felt like she conquered the wingman. We would hang out. We spent a lot of time together and nothing really intimate even was a lot of talking about our, you know, where we had just come from. We sort of created a bond that we didn't even realize the magnitude of at the time. We had not expected to connect as quickly as we did, which in the end, I think probably why we were able to make it through everything that we did. Okay, so you meet Lloyd, who you have an incredible connection with. However, he is getting ready to move about an hour away. You are living with two of your girlfriends. Can you describe the house that you all are living in? This little house that we were renting and we each had a room, probably a thousand square feet, just a tiny little, like, I think they call them salt boxes or something. One car garage, three, you know, tiny bedrooms and like basically like two little bathrooms and a small little living room and kitchen. We were young and just kind of making it out on our own. And what happened to me, you know, it was a stranger who broke into my home. That stuff didn't happen. For real. That was the stuff you saw in the movies. That was the scary boogeyman kind of stories. That stuff was in Detroit. Yeah. It was certainly not where we were. Never crossed my mind or anybody of my acquaintance's mind at the time to be concerned about being alone in your own home, which you should never have to be concerned about. One of my roommates had gone to another state to celebrate Christmas with her family. And my other roommate and her boyfriend had gone to an amusement park. I had the house to myself that evening. Christmas Eve, I'd been with my family. And then Christmas Day, I spent the day with my family again. 
I was attacked on Christmas night. I believe around 7 p.m., I left my family and I went home. I'm going to do laundry tonight. This is going to be so exciting. I drove to Walgreens. I was the only person in the store besides the clerk. Got a thing of soap and went back to the house and I started doing laundry. Did one load of wash and put it into the dryer. It was getting late, 10-ish or so probably by then. Closed up the house. Doors were locked. We even had a broom handle that we kept in the sliding glass door to keep it from being jimmied open. Went to bed and I read a book for a while. I don't recall how long, but at some point I got tired enough that I knew I was falling asleep. Put the book down. I turned the light off on my nightstand and I rolled over into bed, like all cozy, you know, in the blankets. Fell asleep very quickly because I was kind of already asleep. So the timing I'm not 100% sure on. I was definitely had been well asleep and I heard something. I could not distinguish what it was. It kind of jarred me awake because whatever it was, was loud. At the moment, I was kind of like, oh, okay, maybe that was the, the lid of the washing machine falling down because I had left it open because I would always leave the washing machine open because it was something my mom told me to keep the to keep it from getting stinky. It didn't concern me that it had fallen down because gravity, not a big deal. Maybe I'd had it at an angle and it finally inched down enough. So I didn't give it another thought, realized that must be what it was. And I rolled back over. I believe I went back to sleep. And um, sorry, the heart's starting to race. <laughs> it's been a while since I talked about this part of it. At some point, I, I believe I heard something else that made me think maybe somebody was in the house, you know, just kind of blew it off. But at this point, I know I had rolled because my bed was up against the wall. So I had rolled away from the wall and was now facing out into my bedroom, lying in my bed, just kind of looking out towards where the hallway was and the door. And it was all black because I had turned all the lights off. I saw like a, like a beam of light, like a flashlight. And of course, now I'm like, what the hell? You know, and still just kind of like, not even really alarmed at this point. It it was that complete and utter innocence of anything bad could be about to happen. It it was something that I look back at now and think, man, I never feel that again. (laughs) That was my last moment of absolute innocence in this world. And I know that sounds kind of harsh, but I, it really, Everything changed after that, you know, a few paces down and there was a person now in the doorway. All I could see was a dark figure, no distinguishing anything. It was just a tallish, dark figure standing in my doorway. I know that I said one of my like roommate's boyfriends, you know, I just kind of said their names thinking, okay, what other guy would be in my house? Thinking maybe they had come home early and I just hadn't heard the door open. Not putting together the whole, someone's in here with a flashlight. Why wouldn't they have just turned the lights on? You know, from that point, everything sort of just happened. The flashlight was shined in my face, like really like directly in my eyes. So could see nothing. I was rushed at in the moment that I had, because I'm still in my blankets and whatnot. I think at this point, you know, I know I, I put my hands up. I pushed his face away. I was able to like shove. 
and I must have shoved hard enough because he or he wasn't expecting. I don't know, but he definitely stumbled back. So I was able to get up and I ran for the door, but I didn't make it. He grabbed me, threw me to the ground. Uh, So like struggling at this point, I have to assume I was screaming. I honestly, I don't remember those moments exactly. I just know that it was just chaos, you know, of, of fighting and screaming. I was trying to throw things and anything that I could get. And I had this 10 or 12 inch by maybe like eight or nine inches, like kind of solid little figurine. I must've hit it in the, and it came and like smashed down on my head, kind of dazed me for a minute. That gave him enough time to take control. Pillowcase was put over my head. Duct tape or something is wrapped around my head to hold the pillowcase on. And I, I believe to try and stop me from screaming more, it was just like really, really wrapped around like my lower mouth area. I was flipped over and he, he bound my hands behind my back and he bound my ankles. I was still screaming pretty good at that point because he took the pillow and put it over my face, I guess, to quiet me couldn't breathe. Like I was suffocating. I know I said, I can't breathe or I'm dying or I don't know, but he took the pillow away. And then I think he used his arm against my face for a while. He just kind of continued to just kind of try to mute me as much as he could. And then he began the physical attack. Not going to get into that. Did you have on night clothes? I was just wearing like sleep shorts and a t-shirt. Lloyd, who I'd been dating for a month, who I knew I was crazy about, he had given me a t-shirt or left a t-shirt at my house or something one of the times he was there. And I wore it religiously every night, but it had gotten kind of grungy and I had put it in the wash that night because I hadn't washed it in like a week because I kind of needed to wash it. As things were ripped and pulled and you know I it's the weird things that go through your head I literally remember thinking well at least I didn't have that shirt on (laughs) you know it's like the the oddest things that are going through your head in this moment and at some point to control me he had a knife it was kind of jabbed at me and put at my throat and I wasn't stabbed but I was you know, I mean, it didn't break skin, I guess you would say. So that definitely kind of quelled my fight a little bit because I, I didn't want to die. I hoped if there was any chance of getting through this, now that he had presented this large knife, things were going to get a little more hairy. At that point, I remember thinking to an episode of like Oprah show or something where they had said, you know, when, when you find yourself in these positions, you, you kind of have to kind of do what you got to do to make it through, you know, what you got to do to survive. I continued to fight and try to get away, but I definitely wasn't in a position where I was going to be able to grab the knife. I couldn't see anything. Like I said, I was, you know, my whole head was taped. My hands were behind my back. My legs were tied. There wasn't much I could do, but I tried to do what I could. As he proceeded in the attack, he was trying to actually commit the rape part, but my legs were still bound together. So 
science that doesn't really work. I ended up, you know, with huge gashes in the side of my legs where he was trying to strain my legs apart until he, I guess, decided to cut the tape. From that point, I honestly kind of blacked everything out. I, you know, that was when things got where like, I, I'm sure it's in there somewhere, but I'm not going to dig to remember the details of that. The physical attack of it ended. He got up. I was, you know, obviously still laying on the the floor of my bedroom. Uh, He, uh, he walked out, like he walked by my head. And I guess in all of the struggle and whatnot, the pillowcase and the tape over my head had loosened some. As my head was on the floor, I could kind of see the carpet, maybe like half, like an inch or so of like out to the carpet. As he walked by, I, I saw his shoe. He walked past my head. He kicked me in the head. I have to assume continued to walk out and walked out my front door. I pretty sure the kick to the head knocked me out or the exhaustion of what had just happened. I'm not sure, but I, I passed out. I don't have any memory again until I picked my head up, like the feeling of waking up. Did he say any words? Never. He never spoke a single word. That to me was probably one of the most terrifying aspects of it. How do you do something like that? and never make a sound. Now there might've been sounds, but I either didn't hear them over my screaming. Nothing was actually spoken to me. It was as if I wasn't human. You know, I was inconsequential and he had no reason to speak to me. I want to continue, but if it's okay, I want to ask Lloyd what he's feeling right now as he hears you recall the memories. Honestly, if I had to use a single word right now, listening to her tell you this story is probably proud. That's the word I would use. People who have never experienced this have absolutely no idea what it takes to get through it. The years of, oh, you're not over that? Like the just total dismissal of what it does to somebody, let alone a lot of people don't make it through that. I would like to think that I had a part in it. I don't know if I really did. He did. To to be honest. (laughs) Um, Eventually. To see the person that I used to see, I don't know if you want me to say say anything like that. I know what you're going to say. You can say Um, To come home from work and find the person that you're with. You walk around the apartment and you're calling her name and like she's not there. And then you finally find her in the corner of the bathroom behind the toilet, rocking in the dark. You know, what do you do? Like, what do you do about that? It takes a long time to even speak of it, let alone speak of it to strangers. It's been a very, very long road that won't won't end. Like the road never ends. I mean, it gets, maybe it gets a little better. Maybe it's not as much dirt road. Maybe it's a little bit more of a gravel road or, (laughs) It's never going to be a rainbow. It's never going to be the yellow brick road. Your life is going in one direction. And then at that moment, it's going in a totally different direction, never to return. I give her a lot of credit. I don't think that many people can get to where she is. (laughs) See what I mean? He's good. 
as soon as you said proud, I just had like instant tears. It's just amazing. Everything you just said, you put beautifully. And Lloyd, I've never had anybody explain it that way before. So thank you for that. Thank you for being there for Becky. Clarify a little bit, just so you know, Jen, what he's describing is a year to two years later when we were actually living together and I was going through the PTSD and flashbacks and trauma as I worked through nightmares and whatnot. It's a long road. When we were talking, Becky, you kind of just woken up. Like I said, I came to, not really sure, but I guess through maybe adrenaline, whatever, I was able to stretch the tape that was around my hands enough to to shimmy like a hand out. And then I shimmy the other hand. I was able to get that off. What was on my legs was already broken. And then I was able to pull tape in the pillowcase off my head. At this point, do you still have garments on? Yes. The t-shirt that I was wearing is like kind of cut up, but still like over my shoulders. I think that's it at that point. Everything else was gone. Everything else had been cut off or removed. I just kind of like got to my feet and made my way out the bedroom and just down the very short hallway, not at all in like, this is what I'm going to do mode, just just automatic body mode, not at all. Shock. Yeah, just shock. Um, and I remember getting to the front door. To me, just even more disrespectful than what this piece of absolute garbage had already done to me. He literally walked out my front door and left the door wide open, just wide open into the night and just walked out. I was less than human to this person. You know, there was, there was nothing of me, but pray. I remember closing the door, locking the door and there was a door out to the garage he had picked that lock and come in. So that door was kind of hanging open as well. And there was like one little window in the garage that he had come in through that window and then picked his, picked the lock into the kitchen. I picked up the telephone. Again, not a conscious thought of it, just my hand reached. I picked up the telephone and there was no dial tone. This was back in the day of landlines. <laughs> I was just going to say for those listening is, is we didn't have cell phones then. Exactly. Yeah. There was no cell phones. There was no internet. I looked down and the cord that goes into the wall was pulled out. I plugged that back in and then picked up the phone and the, the dial tone was there. A hundred percent have no conscious thought of doing it, but I dialed 911. Honestly, I have no idea what I said but it was a woman on the other end. She very calmly spoke to me, her demeanor and her words, like kind of like calming my breath down. She started talking to me and asking me questions. And I know at this point I had gone around the side of the little kitchen island and I was underneath like this tiny little bar with bar stools. And I crawled under the, the bar stools. I know she either asked me or must have asked me if I was alone or if there was anyone. Maybe she asked me who to call. I don't know. I ended up giving her my parents' information. She stayed on the phone with me, but also called my parents. If I remember correctly, my dad thought it was around two-ish that he got, that he got woken up and got the call. She told them that I had been hurt 
only lived about maybe 10, 15 minutes away from me. So they came. In the meantime, she had called and had police on the way. And she was telling me that, you know, the police were on the way and they'd be there in a little bit and that my parents were on the way. I said to her, okay, I'm, I'm going to take a shower. I have to take a shower. No one can see me like this. Not like out of vanity, but just out of, it was horrible. She said to me, no, kind, but stern. She wasn't going to listen to me. There wasn't an opportunity for me to do that. She was like, no, you're not going to do that. You cannot take a shower. She didn't say why, but she just said, you, you can't do that. It's very important that you do not take a shower. You stay on the phone with me. You know, we're going to stay on the phone until the police get there. I can recall the rocking back and forth. That kind of became my coping motion. I know I was rocking back and forth and I was still on the phone with her and I kept saying, I want to die. I want to die. I want to die. I want to die. That's the only words I consciously remember saying the whole time being on the phone with her. She said to me, you don't want to die. You just don't want this to be happening to you. You're going to get through this. To this day, those words ring in my head when I get the dark moments. I'm like, nope, I just don't want this to be happening. And I'm, I'm going to get through this. 32 years later, that phone call with that person, I would probably say is a good, strong reason why I didn't off myself at several points throughout my recovery, my, my survivorhood. So thank you to whoever that was. Because they are truly the first responder. Yeah. This personal experience could have made or broke my case as well. Because if I had showered down the road, things would have gone very differently. Right. Who arrived first then, your parents or law enforcement? It was pretty close, but law enforcement arrived first. I remember seeing the flashing blue lights reflecting in the the sliding glass door that I was facing. At that moment, she said to me, they're outside your door. I've confirmed it's them. You can go ahead and open the door. I remember being kind of hesitant. And I think I might've said, I don't want to, or something like that. And she was like, no, they're, they're going to help you. They're here to help you. She told me to go open the door because they were standing at the door. So I went and I opened the door. It's, (laughs) I look back now and it seems like there were about 850 police officers on the front lawn and cop cars everywhere and an ambulance. At this point they, they came in, but I know I was sitting on the couch with a couple of officers next to me. And there were other officers like going around the house shortly thereafter. They hadn't been there that long. I heard my father on the front yard screaming, cussing and screaming. My dad was, Oh yeah, that was him. My dad was a loud man (laughs) and he was not happy. So he was like screaming. That's my daughter. Get the F out of my way. You're not, you know, like let me through, let me through. I remember screaming back, daddy, like that's my dad, like my dad, my dad and my mom were kind of like rushed in. They sat down with me and my dad had his arms around me and my mom, you know, was there, you know, from that moment. And that was probably when I first cried, when I first started breathing, when I, you know, once I was with my parents, they told me that they were going to take me to the hospital and they wanted me to go in the ambulance for whatever reason. I lost my shite. Absolutely not. You are not putting me in an ambulance. There is no, I will go to the hospital. I will walk to it. Like, I don't know why. I have no conscious reason why, but there was no way they were getting me in the back of an ambulance. So my dad talked to them and said, 
we will follow you to the hospital, but she's coming with us. They allowed me to get into my parents' car. And then I, there was a police officer that we followed and there were police officers that stayed behind us the whole time. This has been a sensitive topic and a sensitive episode. And believe it or not, it's not over. This is just half of Becky's story. We're going to stop here for today. We will pick up with the next episode. I want to thank Becky and Lloyd for being my guests today. This is Jen Lee. I am host of I Need Blue podcast, Survivors Talk Surviving. Remember, you are stronger than you think.